Hello, you're listening to the Consequential Podcast. Roger's here. Say hello, Roger. <laughs> hello. Say hello, Lucy. Greetings. And we've got a special guest. Hello. This is Chris. He was on the show before. Hello. At Thought Bubble last year, and he does the music you've just heard. You've all met Chris. You all like Chris. Chris is here. Good. Chris is here to talk about Elcaf. I am, because none of you fuckers could be bothered to turn up. That's true, it's far away. You are very lazy. I don't really like comics. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, explain a lot. (laughs) Which comics have you been reading? Some! So I um, accidentally went in on a Magical Wolves in webcomics theme this week, completely inadvertently. There's just so many Magical Wolves out there. That's true. They're well represented. So, uh, first of all, I read Mooncakes, which is by Suzanne Walker and Wendy Zoo, which um, I think started either end of last year or beginning of this year. It's quite slight so far, but it's about... Um, it's sort of a normal world in which magic is also a thing, and it's um, a sort of Chinese-American person who has sort of access to witchcrafty stuff, lives with her two grandmothers who run a kind of bookstore that also has like a kind of witch bookstore section and it's just caught up with an old friend who also happens to be probably some kind of werewolf with and we're not quite sure what and there's wolf magic and that's kind of what we've got to but it's good is wolf magic different from other kinds of magic it's more potent more potent yeah because, other kinds of magic. because wolves i suppose that's a, yeah that makes sense they're, they're potent beasts mm-hmm. okay you look skeptical slightly Dave. i'm Why? skeptical of the the potency of wolf magic because saying wolf magic is very potent does sound like something a middle-aged lady would mutter in a bookshop. Um, in in my t-shirts. In my broad experience, it's back the when we had thing to deal with those middle-aged yeah. ladies muttering about wolf magic. As long as they've got one mm. on the um, spare wheel cover on the back of their jeep as well, we're all good. Mm. Yeah, I think they were. You've got to really accessorise the whole spare the... wheel cover with your fleece and t-shirt combo. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because. Nothing looks... Yeah, dressing like you're a New Mexico hippie in East Anglia is a good look. Oh, it goes down well. So the thing about this comic, right? Yes. No, I'm just desperately trying to get us back on track. Okay. <laughs> I did actually have a look. I read two pages of it just, just very quickly to... Ooh, this sounds interesting. It looked kind of charming. It's pleasant. It's nice and diverse um, in terms of, you know, sex stuff and race mm. stuff and, you know, nice and inclusive and witchy and quite light so far, but quite fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. The mooncakes are the things that are served at um, Chinese New Year, aren't they? Yes. Like glutinous cakes. It's a really fucking good cake. That's why I got the glutinous rice flour. Ah, you know, Kit really likes them, but he's kind of sort of, well, it's a sentimental thing more than sort of enjoying the taste, I think. But I enjoy the texture. I don't really care about the taste of food. That's not what I'm here for. It's does, all about the texture. Does this mean that there's a sort of family element to it? Not your um, love of stodgy glutinous things in, in the comic <laughs> yes well so there's a bunch of relationships yet that we haven't quite explored so the main character lives with two grandmothers it's not clear what their relationship to each other is or to her is or where the sort of parental layer in the middle is it's not clear if they're gay grandmas or just two grandmas mm. if you see what I mean yeah um, and it's also I think going to be a lot about re-establishing this relationship with the wolf friend and again, there was some sort of backstory there, and I think some kind of possibly romantic desires, but it's not clear how they're going to get there. And yeah, we haven't entirely got to the meat of the relationships yet. Mysteries mm. abound. Yeah, but it was it was fun. I'll definitely um, check it out in a few months and see where it's got to. I can ask, is it going on the roster? Yeah, probably. It updates quite infrequently. I think mm. it's only a few times a month. I forgot to update the Gay Hockey Pie comics. So I need to go back to that. Okay. Also, it was a really good example of webcomics not being shit on Tumblr. It just looks like a proper webcomic embedded with kind of first, last, next, mm, previous that, buttons. It actually navigates properly. Yes, it actually navigates well, properly. Does it respect, on Tumblr. Does it respect the keyboard? I didn't try the keyboard. But do you prefer it when they respect the keyboard? I, was, I, was, I think most Tumblr users probably use a mobile device. It's not really, you know, <laughs> keyboards are for like old people. Don't they interface um, via the mind rainbows? Well, they could do that as well. I'm very scared. Pit, isn't it? Hmm. So what were the other wolves you were reading about? The other wolves I was reading, I um, went back to Family Man for the first time in a long time. Is Um, that ongoing? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's still updating. It's uh, Dylan McConus, who also did Bite Me and a couple of other short things, and I think um, had an announcement about a new graphic novel at some point. Yes. Recently. Yes, she did. Which I'm also excited about, because everything she does is just fucking great. Um, If you like 18th century German theology... But also, like, wolf rituals, family man, comic for you. 
Um, I, I don't like those things. Clock making, are you interested in clock making at all? No. The um, experience of integrating as a sort of previously Jewish family into a very Christian society? I mean, I'm not against it. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's like a hobby. Sure. I mean, I think either I've got really weird interests or... Yeah. No, the first one. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, no, that it's that one, one. isn't it? But this one, just it just pushes all of my buttons. It's got theology and fun. It's extraordinarily well drawn. It's really, mm. really beautiful. Really nice use of um, tone. It's quite a sort of muted colour palette. But she also does things like... So um, the main character, Luther, has a twin brother, but their speech bubbles have very slightly different colour shading, mm. which is great for visual distinction if you're someone like me who can't usually tell where the stuff is pointing. Um, and it's kind of all kicked off since I last picked it up. When I last was with it, it's very kind of long establishing section it's in the beginning. throwing down in the German theological clockmaking community. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to really get to grips with a lot of stuff before all the wolves really start kicking off. But yeah, that's good. I also, I, th- I feel like I kind of read it slightly more critically this time than last time, so I was pretty young when I last read it. Um, and actually, you know, this time... So previously, there's a section where Luther and his twin brother are talking to each other, and the twin brother is kind of made out on the surface to be like the bad one. He's sort of the slight renegade of the two brothers, and Luther's the scholar and the good boy. And actually, he's... You know, I don't know why I took that at face value the first time, because he's kind of an asshole. Like, he means well, and he is a good guy, but he's also kind of an asshole. And I kind of enjoyed that subtlety a lot more this time around. I think there's going to be a lot of people going back to reading Scott Pilgrim in their late 20s, early 30s, and just going, Oh. 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 One of those. I was one of those. So how long long has it been going for? Quite a long time. It's, um, it's, It's in the sort of... It only updates about once a week, and it's in the sort of, I think, 400s of pages at this right. point. Oh, yeah, I was so going to say it's at least four years, because I'm sure when yeah. we started it, it was it was going, then Bite Me had just finished. Yeah, we talked about it quite early in the podcast, didn't we? Very briefly. Maybe on the first, first one was webcomics, yeah. but I think, I think I'd come to it even earlier than that. That was one a friend recommended probably a few years before that. I may have even read it sort of at home, so yeah, it's been going a fair while. But it's great, and it's really nice to read it in a big chunk. I sort of... I read the updates for a couple of years, and it's that webcomic problem of you don't get the satisfaction of a narrative arc when you're reading. You also get kind of more... There's that little bit of suspense in every page when it's a drip feed, and actually I prefer the kind of smoothing of suspense over the long term when you read it as a whole. I'm not really very good with suspense. I just, I just want to know. I don't want to dick around. You do know how plots work, right? Yeah, but fuck it. Just tell me the good bit. I'll read it on Wikipedia or something. Fair. Someone had a go at me on Twitter the other day for saying that a comic from the middle of an arc was incomprehensible without the rest of the arc. Um, and I blamed narrative. And apparently that was unreasonable. Was that someone a dick? No, they were actually quite reasonable. But he did CC and Ryan North at the same time, who was the person responsible for the said narrative. <laughs> so it made me look like a dick. I'm sorry. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry that you looked like a dick in front of Ryan North. It seems quite unlikely that you upset him. He's yeah, he's probably sitting on top of his pile of money from comics mm. because you know how all that that sweet comics money. Oh yeah, yeah there's loads yeah. of it. We're rolling in ourselves. The mad sheds from that comics. Keeping us in corn mm. every six months. It's been playing out more regularly. I think people have been clicking on our stuff more. Oh, that's good. Keep yeah. clicking, people. It buys us. Our corn. recommendations are fucking solid. They're not really recommendations. We talk no. about everything. Whether we like it or not. Yeah. yeah. Talking of which, the good ones. <laughs> oh, I don't like things. Yes, you do. Sometimes I like things. I like the gay hockey pie comic. Oh, it is good comics. Which, just for the record, is called... Check, Check please. please. There we go. And you can find that on the internet. Yeah. Again, on the Tumblr, O-M-G. less well-optimised uh, for looking at... OMG Check, Please, I think yeah, is the URL. Yeah, I think so. It's the best thing. This is how we provide a service. But it is... Don't click that one, though. We don't get money from that one. (laughs) (laughs) It's something genuinely pleasant at heart that you also enjoy. I know. What the fuck is up with that? Is it it the gay sadness? Maybe. I'm I'm, I'm as confused as you are. (laughs) Do you have a secret love for hockey? No. Do you have a secret love for anything you read this week? That was so nearly a segue. I'm almost, I'm almost going to let you have it without being weird about it. I have a stick. I will hit you. 
It's quite a thick stick. It's not stick. his penis. No, it's not. Yeah, I to make it weird. Comment about that. <laughs> might it might be a metaphor for his penis. Possibly. I don't. I don't need I to strike. I was hitting myself over the, the shoulder with it. <laughs> Astounding! It's like I'll a fucking firehouse. Please tell us about at least one comic. <laughs> sure. Let's 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 slide away from your your metaphorical whacking dick. Um, I have been reading Descender, which is. Um, it's the robots comic that I periodically talk about. It's one of them. <laughs> so yeah. I picked up volume one of that ages ago and never got around to reading it. So for the benefit of me and other readers, perhaps you, other listeners, perhaps you'd like to fill us in. Golly. Um, so Descender is... I'm enjoying this. I'll just sit back. <laughs> yeah, you can just fuck off. I think he's better at this than you. Someone Ooh. else is sassing him now. Um, it's uh, Jeff Lemire and Dustin Nguyen, and it's uh, Jeff Lemire writing. He often he often arts. He does um, do an art sometimes. But uh, Dustin Nguyen is arting this time, and it's beautiful. That's the thing that sort of first drew me to it in Volume One, and I have to say Volume Two is a bit less impressive. It's just a bit like, well, it's less playful. It's still as good, but some of the page composition is less playful. The first volume has some wonderful page turn reveals and big exciting things, but it's uh, it's a big foofy space opery thing. It's a bit like Mass Effect fan fiction. It's got a very similar kind of, there were giant robots that came and destroyed everything and we fought back and now they've been into myth, but they might come back and there's stuff to do with robots. Is there a human so. reaper? Because if there's not, I'm out. <laughs> um, it's an interesting moot point. There's, it's not quite a human reaper, but there's some stuff going on with mysterious origins of AI and robots. I meant like literally a horrible dangling like robot fetus. You've become weirdly fixated on that recently. It's this true. Sort of gigantic ham golem of death. Michael Gove. He's not gigantic, no, but otherwise. No. Um, so the the first volume gives you a lot of backstory on these harvesters, I think they're called, rather than reapers, but or whatever. It's, it's very different. <laughs> very different. It's, it's that kind of shite. Someone literally typed in reaper synonym into Google.com. And the end of the first volume kind of winds up a bunch of stuff to do with the sort of secret origin of the weird robots. and But then it, it, it sort of... The first couple of issues look like it's going to go hard into the sort of Mass Effect-style big universe-spanning conflict mm-hmm. plot. And it just sort of collapses in on itself into space opera in a way that sort of works. I know I sound unconvinced because I'm more interested in the arc plot. But the detail stuff works. It's sort of dickhead android saga at this point. So there's a bunch of factions or groups of people on the run from a variety of things um, footling around the galaxy with weird planets with strange aliens and the, the core idea effectively is that human, since a giant catastrophe with mysterious murder, murder droids, humans have banned AI and mm-hmm. are hunting down and killing robots. There's a, rogue, there's a rogue robot faction. They've just found this droid called Tim21 who's like a hyper-realistic child companion droid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is some sort of hold in, in his brain somewhere holds some sort of secret to maybe prophecy or stuff or the cycle of some sort. Yeah. So, and currently, uh, his former owner has just been introduced as a bounty hunter that ambiguously maybe kills robots and has just gone to see his cyborg ex-wife. Um, but they might be attacked by giant space worms. And there's it, it's, there's a lot going it's, on. Yeah, yeah, it's it's got a lot of stuff going on. And honestly, sometimes it's a bit too look to camera and explain itself, mm-hmm. but. Mm. It's beautiful and it's fun. It's like a less good, less feelingsy saga, but done in watercolors. Okay. Good. I, I'm enjoying it. Again, I, I'm trade waiting on it. I didn't. I decided to stop picking up singles, but because of that pact that you made. That dark, dark pact. Uh, also had a look at. Well, I mean, some stuff for the topic, but also Stickleback, which was a um, recommendation from Mr. Combray a while ago. And it was going for cheap on the Amazons, so I picked it up. And this is Ian Eddington and Disraeli. Uh, it's a 2000 AD, I think. It, it is, is 2000 AD, so It's yeah. a collection. I think that maybe I was just reading it wrong, but it felt like the stories were a bit longer than I would have expected from a standard 2000 AD. No, they tend to be around that. I mean, it's got, it's got two stories in the first mm. volume, mm. Um, plus one tiny one. There are only a couple of places where I could reliably detect an issue break. They've been elided very yeah, comfortably. They, they're really getting very good at that. Because mm. um, that's one of the things that was really pigment. You couldn't tell that it was originally in sort of mm. three or six page chunks. Yeah. 
And so it's about this uh, London crime boss, Stickleback, who has a monstrous exoskeletal spine thing. Stick on his back. Going, yeah, that, that, yeah. that business. One of those. Yeah. Uh, the first story is a detective hunting him down and in so doing ending up coming to blows with a secret society of druids who might have turned into a crime society running London and there's some stuff to do with Gog and Magog and uh, some other bits and pieces And if, if, if you like 19th century mystical druidic London yeah, I'm all about the 18th century German theologian clockmakers I'm yeah. not at all interested I've, I've in come to the wrong crowd yeah. it's, it's all just wrong podcast <sighs> wrong century wrong discipline I see you're all about the horology I'll get my coat I really love Stickleback it's great um, it's it so daft and the thing I hadn't realised so I, I, knew, I knew from your description of it on the, the podcast previously that it would be big and daft and characterful and fun what I hadn't realised is how it was going to look mm. so it's sort of black and white overwhelmingly mm. With this very heavy shading, it's the, the line work is almost indetectable. It's kind of colour blocks fitted together. Um, sometimes quite delicate, sometimes weirdly high detail backgrounds, almost photorealistic, mm-hmm. um, with abstract sort of characters abstracted. It's, it, I'm really struggling to explain. Did what you get this the back matter like. in that? I, he goes through, he goes through his process a little bit. So he <clears> has <throat> sort of it's it's all sort of done in grayscale, um, and he. Gets a, he does a lot of photography for textures and then mm. uses those as brushes. Mm. So there's a lot of stuff um, like lichens shot at really high resolution, mm. then blown out, um, rotting leaves, brickwork, mm. and things like that. So you have a lot of sort of really dense textures at different sort of different sort of grey tones that he uses and blends together. You yeah. get a weird grubby feel from that. It's sort of like a Shiroskiro Dave McKean cover. Yeah, not a million miles away. It's all sort of. It's all done digitally, but sort of feels quite grubby and organic. Oh, brilliant. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, and it's got, like, weird circus people. And I do like weird circus freaks. Different crime lords. Like, it just it sort of picks out every little bit of ridiculous 19th century pulp and gives yeah. it its, well, it's minute in the sun. Yeah, it's your sort of um, Moriarty's Limehouse kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, with sort of Fu Manchu-y stuff and, yeah. and um, as you say, weird druidic. Uh, the druid stuff is proper nuts. Yeah, yeah, it's weird. And then you have other crime lords and all sorts of shit going on and detectives having nervous breakdowns. It gets a lot done. Well, to be fair, in his entire family get murdered. Yeah, well. That'll do it. That will do it. That, that's, that's how that happens. Mm. Yeah, I like it. There's, I think there's two volumes out at the moment. There's going to be a third at some point. Oh, shiny. Um, when they've, I think, done the sixth storyline. Mm. It's a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it significantly more than Descender. I mean, Descender is good, but this was this was much, much better. I think in, in its defense, Stickleback is designed to be ludicrously over the top. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, it has fire-breathing people and zombies. and Yeah, and the weird wolf bastards. More wolves. wolves. Yeah. It's a theme. Well, they're sort of a bit wolfy, a bit yeti-ish. Like a yeah. gangly yeti. Yeah. <coughs> Does it have the two idiots in this one? Mm. I only yeah. read the first story in the first volume. Okay. So. It might be later on. So before we prohibit you from talking again, what are we drinking? <laughs> oh, it's still in his mouth. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, he's drooling it. Oh. You besmirched your crotch. Oh, Roger, <laughs> Roger will now talk eloquently about <laughs> wine. Roger is an educated man. He went to Cambridge University. You are such a cunt. He knows several large words. <laughs> oh, golly, I do mean to harm you. Um, today you po- spat wine on your own <laughs> balls. It was just to the right of my balls, actually. At least you didn't puke on your dick. I did not. That's possible. Anything's <laughs> possible if you believe in yourself, Lucy. And not for me. I'm never puking on my dick. <laughs> Why am I here? We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> uh, today's podcast wine you know, is... Um, witnesses. ...is the Marcus Huber um, Grunewald liner. And it's much better than the English wine from last podcast. It is much better than the English it's wine. It's a lot less salty. Yes, it tastes a lot more like wine, which less I find like to be acid. a positive... Mm. Um, it's, um, it's soft minerals with sort of a little bit of sharp peach. 
I would I would agree with that assessment. Which is no, it's a minerally wine. Okay. It is. Yeah. It is. Okay. It's, it's everything you want from a Grand Vetliner, basically. It's it's delightful. Yeah, it's like a lot of Gewürz. <laughs> don't don't do what you're thinking, and then you're like, fuck you, Gewürz. <laughs> fuck you, but not with this one. You're like, thanks. I would I would listen to your insincere white boy thug, thug life wine cast. Chris. Chris is, Chris is our guest. Hello, Chris. Hello. Is enjoying our hospitality, I think that's fair to say. A good hospitality of corn and not bad wine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here to tell us about this year's LCAF, which we've t- talked about a couple of times in the past, but yeah, as you say, none of us could be bothered to go this year. I did go once. You did go once. And then we went to Chipotle, it was great. Yeah. Yeah, you seemed quite happy. You seemed a lot happier in Chipotle than you did yeah. uh, at the show. There were a lot fewer people. Was yeah. this year's LCAF better than Chipotle? Also, well, I've not been to Chipotle in London, so I can't tell you, but um, by all accounts, this year's Alcaf is or was considerably better um, in terms of density of people than previous years. Not that fewer people were there, but they managed the thing better on account of it being in a bigger venue, being mm. spread over three days, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, um, it sort of felt like the, the bit of thought bubble that sucks all of my money. Um, <laughs> out of my wallet uh, in, a, in a small room so um, I guess the sort of the, 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 the big indie publishers like No Brow and Avery Hill and that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, there but um, none of the sort of the mainstream issue publishers and an awful lot of independent um, mm-hmm. illustrators graphic designers zines artists, zi- collectives lots, lots of zines lots of collectives all that all that good shit um, so yeah um, I had a I had a nice time there um you could sort of do. You could sort of get round the whole thing in about an hour, but you probably like if you want to see things, take a couple of hours over it. There were food trucks and good coffee. Good coffee. Ooh, ooh. Um, um, available on site without needing to go somewhere else and queue for for hours. Um, I'm still, <laughs> I'm still <laughs> angry about that. Not you hear that? <laughs> Someone who is um, thought bubble. <laughs> So, yeah, um, and I picked up a bunch of stuff. Um, there, there's a, a couple of sort of highlights. Um, I guess the, the sort of the big highlight of the, or for me, of the, of the show was a collective called the Kadak Collective. Um, it's a women's collective from South Asia. They met on the internet on the tumblers or something somehow. I don't know if it was their first exhibition, um, but they seem to have sort of come together specifically for Alcaf, and there was quite, mm. a, there was quite a, a big buzz around their stall. Um, they describe themselves, or apparently Kadak um, is a word meaning strong or sharp or that sort of thing. Um, and they describe themselves as strong and sharp like our tea. Um, and it's sort of very um, sort of um, feminist issues, um, but from a very specific subcontinental um, kind of perspective. Um, everything on their table looked amazing and I really wanted to buy it all. Um, the two things I did pick up um, was one book called The Same Everywhere, um, and I'm going to try and say some names. Um, it's okay, it's not our strong suit. So. <laughs> no. Regular um, listeners will know that this is a perennial concern for us. Yeah, we fail with fairly straightforward two-syllable European names, so um, no yeah. judgment from us. Yeah, so The Same Everywhere by Arti Patatharati and Kaveri Gopalakrishnan. Um, it's a story about two people um, separated by distance, one in India, one an expat in Paris. Uh, it's set around the time that homosexuality was recently recriminalised in India. And it's sort of um, an exploration on prejudice, both towards homosexuality and towards immigrants. It's got sort of a background in colonialism as well, because the origins of outlawing of homosexuality in India originate from colonial times anyway. Um, it's told sort of primarily through Skype and phone conversations between the two, um, just talking about their lives in a very sort of modern millennial internet citizen kind of way. Um, the art's sort of dark and sketchy and a bit painterly, and it's it's generally just a lovely slice of life kind of comic, um, quite sweet and yeah, I really like that. Um, the second thing I picked up um, is. My Secret Crop um, by one of the same people who did the same everywhere, Kaveri Gopalakrishnan. Um, it's about 
female body hair, cultural implications thereof, mm. shame, acceptance, celebration mm. thereof, and the art is this sort of wonderfully flowing landscape type thing where the human body is used as a landscape that the, the hair on the body turns into sort of grasses and trees and things and it's it's oh, cool. it's it's really really wonderful um and yeah I, I picked that up and was just like oh I know so many people who will completely adore this um and I I loved it as well so is that um, is it are they doing anything with the colour palette there, or is it sort of black and white? Or it's, I'm trying it's, to picture it. But. It's um, it's it's mostly sort of black and white. I think there's a, I, I I'm trying to remember now because it's a while since I read it. But yeah, it's it's mostly but it's quite painterly in its style mm. as well. So I think there might be a colour wash over it. Oh. I, I I might be describing it completely wrong, but that's how it is in, in my memory anyway. Mm. Um, so yeah, the Kadak Collective they were great, and I say they were kind of there was a buzz around them all weekend. Um, loads of people. Uh, around their stall all the time and um, talking to them all the time, so that was that was yeah a big thing. A um, couple of other things that I liked as well. There was an Estonian comics collective there as well, who I've tried to find online afterwards and absolutely cannot. So I'm almost doubting myself that they were even there, <laughs> but for the fact that I bought one of their books, um, a little children's um, comic called On the Trail. Um, it's a sort of a simple children's story about a girl who finds a cat and follows it um, and it's it's absolutely delightful it's in that kind of children's illustration um, not as a single children's illustration style but in that sort of manner of thing lots of bright mm. colors incredibly incredibly gorgeous art that you just sort of the sort of world that you just want to dive into and be in in that sort of I want to be seven and the world to be brightly colored and wonderful and full of adventure and mystery and all those things again um, so I really liked that. Um, there was um, a guy called Andy Poyaji, who is a TV director turned comics artist, and he had a thing there called Veripathy or Veripathy or I don't know how you pronounce he's, he's that word. He's been turning over the years, and his stuff's yeah. just been getting bigger and bigger. So he's he's had some stuff on Nobrow before, but this yeah, this this has... was a more slender. Okay, yeah, he thing. had he had one very small book come out on Nobrow's mm. like first published work range. Um, last year called Lost Property. Yeah. Before um, that he did like tiny, tiny comic strips that were folded up inside tea bags. Um, oh, that guy. guy. Yeah. The tea bags guy. Uh, yeah, which are um, really neat. He, he was, I say, completely new to me when I was there, although I just did the, the no-brow stuff in retrospect. Um, and yeah, Veripathy or Veripathy or whatever is a collection of short stories about um, a world where basically technology exists to facilitate empathy um, and you literally like two people wear helmets and plug them into each other and they can feel what the other person is feeling in a very literal sense um, and as with sort of all good sci-fi it uses that as a jumping off point for exploring what would happen if we really could do that so it's use as sort of a couple's therapy and counselling in, you know, generally as a sort of psychotherapeutic technique. Um, and it ends, or at least at one point there's a comic where there is a therapist who can, through this technology, actually take people's pain away from them and onto themselves. Um, and it ends with someone asking the therapist how they deal with this, and it sort of ends at that point. And the whole thing is kind of really unsettling in that sort of in the art style kind of helps with that as well the art's very sort of minimal simplistic lots of geometric lines and sort of blocks um, of colour representing things there's very little um, what colour there is is very solid and very minimal um, and so it's this sort of very straightforward telling of these stories and um, of these things but in a, in a really really unsettling kind of way um, I really, really liked it. Um, I re read it shortly after leaving the thing, and it sort of put me on edge for you know, the journey home. Hmm. Um, that was helpful. Which was, yeah, um, a couple of other bits and pieces as well. Um, I 
Blob Squad by Christina Bozinski, um, which is a book of character designs and illustrations. Um, I just like Christina Bozinski. Yeah, I did a dance. You can't see that because yeah. it's the future radio. Yeah, and it's it's um, there's no story. It's just a collection of illustrations. Um, she drew some coloured blobs. She drew some faces on them. Um, it's it's delightful if you love Christina Bozinski's art, and you should love Christina Bozinski's art because it's, it's lovely. It's fucking great. It's yeah, um, and it comes with a set of blobs that you can draw your own characters on as well and feel deeply inferior. <laughs> um, they picked up uh, Internal Wilderness by Claire Scully, um, published by Avery Hill, um, and I'm not sure what to make of it, to be honest. It's described as a sequence of events occurring over a period of time and location in space, and it's part of a project looking at landscape and memory, or our relationship with the environment, the effects we have on the world and space around us, and in turn its profound effect on our own memory and emotions. And I'm reading that off a piece of paper because, honestly, I'm not quite sure that... Well, there's landscapes in it, um, and, and that's kind of it, really. It's a series of illustrations and a series of pictures of landscapes and things within them, and there's threads running through it, um, but there's no narrative as such. Um, I probably need to sit down and go back to it when I'm feeling a bit more contemplative and not fighting my way through London public transport because mm. um, it wasn't an ideal situation to read it in but um, it sounds interesting there's a couple of things that sort of close to that recently everything Tilly Walden's done sort of yeah, edges so, in so it, 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 it reminded me of a sort of a non-narrative version of um, was it, I love this part mm, yeah, yeah. That was it. yeah. Um, so it, it reminded me of sort of, a, of that without the narrative, except there might be a narrative there, but if there is, I think it's one you bring to it rather than it existing in the in the book. I need to go back to it and have a look at it. Um, and um, finally, yeah, I picked up the new Rachel Smith book, um, Artificial Flowers. It's a continuation of two of her previous books, um, I Am Fire and House Party, picking up on the characters from those. It's more Rachel Smith doing. She's really good. What what she does, um, yeah, she's great. Um, I love it. Uh, she's got a Patreon now as well. You should go and support it, uh, and you get um, diary comics. So that that was Elcaf. Um, it was it was really good. I really liked it. Um, I went on my birthday, and it was a nice birthday present. Did you eat from the trucks? I ate from one of the trucks. Yes. Um, what the, was the truck food? The food was pretty good. Um, I had a very reasonably priced pizza um, cooked in an actual stone oven inside a truck, which seemed like a hell of a thing. It's to not the big one with the glass walls. Is no, it? Okay. no, no. It was, it was. It was still like one of them little citron. Trucks, okay. Um, oh. But they'd managed to fit a stone oven into the back of the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, because normally they're they're sort of out back, or they park the other yeah. somewhere else. Or... No, no, this was this was all. There's in one. one that's a massive, massive truck with big glass mm. walls that's got one inside that I happened to see. Yeah. But there was there was um, a, a Greek thing things in wraps um, mm. and falafel and hummus type deal there mm. as well, um, and it was in Hackney as well. So you know you chuck a brick and you hit three other hipster cafes selling something in a wrap, selling things in wraps or other things. Mm. You know, it was, it, you know the location was great. Um, so yeah, would go back. Um, Good. That's pretty cool. I'll, I'll probably go again next year, and then blame you if I don't like it. Well, my only issue has ever been the crowds, because the the people they bring in have been fantastic. Mm. I mean, it's really good opportunity to see people that you don't necessarily see at some of the bigger shows. Yes. Um, I've never sort of come away from it thinking, oh, I didn't see anything mm. I was interested in. There's always going to be more oh, yeah. that I'm interested in there than at a bigger show, because a lot of the bigger shows just get monopolised by big names that I don't fucking care about. Yeah, I'm, I'm very much the same. It's like image Marvel DC artists. I, I have the barest inclination of... You're going to make money whether or not I engage yeah. with you. Um, yeah, I think the, the one thing that I get from the big shows is that they're, some, they're interesting to hear talk. Yes, um, better for panels. But I don't need to buy stuff. anything from yeah. them. Yeah. So there, there were panels at LCAF. I didn't go to a single one, um, partially because I went on the Sunday. Um, and most of the, sort of the big panels in inverted commas were on the Saturday. Um, yeah, Saturday so, lineup sounded nice. Um, but... Yeah, um, the other thing that really helps is the new venue, the Round Chapel. They're in. Um, mm. they're, it's a two-level type affair, so it's set out like. Um, well, it's, it is a chapel, so there's the, sort of the ground floor, and then there's a, a balcony mezzanine thing mm. that runs around at the top. And um, so once you have bought your comics, you can retire upstairs to a pew, 
and away from the crowds and go and read them with a the coffee. Um, and there was sort of space up there all day, um, and it wasn't too crowded. And you oh, that out. sounds much nicer. No, this um, sounds great. They had the, the first well, they had this two tier thing at the first one we went to, where you couldn't get up there. Yeah, um, and all the talks were on the stage. You just sort of you just sat sort of on the stage in the middle of everywhere. Everyone stared at you. you. Wanted to go to a talk. Yeah, yeah it was weird. And the talks were all in separate buildings and mm. things. So yeah. Um, yeah. Good job, Elkaf. You've, yeah. you've come Thumbs on. Up. Thumbs up to that. Congrats. So uh, today we're covering the Louvre editions, mm. the Louvre's very own range of comic books. Uh, oh, you're um, you're an arty sort. Tell us about that. That wasn't a term for homosexual, by the way. That yes. Was... Thanks for the hate crime. <laughs> Jeez, old timey hate crime as well. That's like up there with the was it, was it view from the bridge with the yeah he's blonde thing. They like, are uppity, aren't they? Like you're just <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm I'm a wordsmith, very much like Arthur Miller. Now, please tell us about these comics. Why, <laughs> why, why does a Parisian art gallery have a range of comics? Um, I imagine because they've got a vast cash surplus and weird aspirations. But um, they need to engage the youths. Well, so this is the interesting... I'll come back to that. Um, the Louvre editions... The, the Louvre, as, as a lot of large museums and galleries do, publish a lot of shit. Both sort of catalogues to go with exhibitions and educational bits and bobs. And starting in, as far as I can tell, like maybe 2004, 2005, they commissioned um, a bunch of comics about the Louvre, but particularly about the collection, in conjunction with, I think, Futuropolis, or they're called something like that, the, the pub- relatively small comics publisher, and the one that's translated them into English is, or it, that is running their English editions. Comics Lit. Exactly. Yeah, Comics Lit. Uh, and there's a string of these. Six, eight books so far. There's, there's a few. Yeah, there's a fair number. Possibly six. It's yeah. It's 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 reasonably well known comics people doing stuff about or around the Louvre, and at various points, I, this, this this has formed the backbone of at least one exhibition. The only one I could track back decent details of was the 2009 one, the Louvre invites the comics, and the press release for that is just. It's hilariously badly translated into extremely pompous sort of art crit English. Are you sure it's a really bad translation? I hope it's a really bad okay. translation. Benefit of <laughs> benefit of the doubt. So, of the two, though, the two that I read, one was quite badly translated. One was extremely badly translated. Yeah, there are some problems here. Oh, mine were pretty well translated. I so, got the good ones. Yeah. So the, the crazy um, glacial period is either mostly very well translated with some wobbles or idiomatically mm. weird. Yeah, yeah that's, that's it's hard, so hard to tell. And Which Rohan one? at the Louvre, the Mango one, is not well translated at all. It's the problem. No, um, the Louvre. It's that thing where you think that Shakira's got a really bad translator, and then you meet a load of Spanish people who tell you no, she's equally bad shit in Spanish language songs. That is. She's just got really weird phrasing. No, it's um, I, I did not know that. That was the Shakira section of the podcast. Thank you. I don't know anything about it. I know she was in an advert for toothpaste. She did the uh, 2010 World Cup song. She's responsible for an awful lot of Eurovision entries indirectly. Yes. Oh God! The, yes, like there was that period where like the whole of Eastern Europe just submitted like Shakira B sides for about four years. Mm. These are all things that have passed okay, by. Okay, we can I give a lady like a, a shiny chainmail halter top yeah, and some green was, trousers, um, yeah. and she'll be fine. I was in Gran Canaria on a big gay holiday when that World Cup. I was working with <laughs> children in Spain that summer. I listened to that a lot. I yeah. could do the whole dance. The, the, every every gay bar had a kind of weird, racist caricature drag queen doing a version of that, not wearing very much. <laughs> well, I'm not talking blackface, but still pretty bad. Isn't she like South American? Yeah, she's Colombian. Yeah, yeah it, it, the drag queens were not being racially sensitive. Shame on you, drag queens. Drag not, queens of Gran Canaria. Not so in that 2010. way. Just, just for your weird racist thing. There was a guy who was who was uh, his his entire drag queen costume appeared to consist of a wig, some makeup, and a hanky over his winkle. I feel we've strayed. <laughs> this is the drag queens of Gran Canaria circa 2010. I mean, that's probably fine if he's just doing Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm. Anyway, the uh, the Louvre editions. You um, 
if you read the sort of the press fluff, the one of the curators appears to have commissioned it all and waffles on about, oh, this isn't really about this, it isn't really about that. And you, you read through the list of things it's not about. It's not about tempting in young people. It's not about trying to legitimize comics as art. It's not about the, you know, what the fuck is this about? Then you've basically excluded everything it could conceivably be saying other than this is a puff piece for the loop. We want to spooge a pile of money at this. Yeah, so I'm left massively at a loss kind of trying to draw a thematic connection through it. There's a couple, so there's a couple of them, and we'll, we'll talk about some of them in a bit, but... There's a couple in particular, um, Cruising Through the Louvre and Glacial Period, which seem to be about different ways of using comics as a medium to fuck with presenting ways of interacting with the gallery. Museum Vaults has some of that as well. I also read um, Glacial Period as sort of being a response to just not being able to know and comprehend everything yeah. that is there. Museum Vaults is exactly the same. Um, yeah. Phantoms of Louvre is the same as well. Yeah, Glacial Period really engages nicely with the concept of how hard it is to read or fully apprehend something like an art collection without context. It, it plays very nicely with these these ideas of you you only have as much context as you bring in unless you engage with the interpretation but the interpretation is not necessarily reliable it's, there's there a lot some, of fun stuff there a sort of interesting parallel I was entirely randomly reading about the discovery of the caves at Altamira which was one of the first sort of prehistoric sites and they because you were listening to a prog album about it no I was listening to the prog album about it because I was reading yeah. about it there's also a late 70s Spanish prog album about it which is quite good if you like late 70s Spanish prog I can't say I have enough experience <laughs> to say I do I one way or the other. have about as much familiarity there as I do with Shakira. Okay, let's move on. Um, so one, basically the discovery was kind of shelved for a few decades because at the time they didn't think that early humans had the intellectual capability to make representative art. And you've got that thing in glacial period of the discovering yeah. civilization much mm-hmm. later on, coming back and assuming they were just fucking ignorant savages who couldn't write and so they were painting. Or Which is brilliant whatever. because they're, they're actually ignoring evidence that's right in front of them. Yes, yeah. they're yeah. actually writing on the paintings. Yeah. But it's, it, it, just picking up on that little bit of history as well, it's like, yeah, this is actually how we behave as a species. We're kind yeah, of ignorant. But that's sort of, it's, it's sort of slightly wrinkled, wrinkled with me, that, as well, because... At the same time, it's sort of looking, the looking back on the ignorant savages is a certain amount of us being the people in the present who have collated this thing, being superior to the people who will come along later with it. I don't know. I, mm. That might be me reading slightly more into it than than was there. But there was a sort of a, it felt like there was a sort of a weird reverse colonialism thing going on there. I think um, I think something but, that all of the books, well, most of the books covered was just the idea that you need a fuckload of context to yeah, understand yeah. a big museum full of art. That's not, it's not a simple concept. I, I yeah. sort of read them as being essentially present day people just completely stripped of, of context. You would be totally ignorant. It's very easy to sort of go into an, a gallery and feel smart because there's a plaque and it tells you the context in which something was created and, and you've got a ton of known or received wisdom mm. culturally that you've absorbed about all yeah. of that shit the Middle East that you know what it is even if you've never fucking seen it so for the people who don't know what the fuck we're talking about <laughs> yes um, the Louvre is a big room with some paintings in it largely also and, statues and some glacier, so Glacier Period is the Nicholas de Crissy one of these which is about there's a apocalyptic future everything's covered in snow the Louvre is buried some future explorers find it and try and interpret the collection um, as a talking dog. As a talking dog. The, it's really cute. Um, He's named Hulk. <laughs> the uh, cruising through the Louvre is David Brigham's thing of a chap wandering through the Louvre, making some observations. Again, immersion in the collection, but also his way of engaging with it without engaging with it is to sort of talk about the reactions of the people. Mm-hmm. Phantoms is Phantoms of the Louvre is Enki Balal, and he's gone through at night when it's closed, taking pictures of the exhibitions, um, and then printed them out on giant canvases and then painted ghosts on top of them. Um, the book then is sort of presentations of his um, sort of his interpretations of the art with stories around not creators but people related to the creation of the art, um, sometimes in very tangential ways, um, who are attached to it and it so, sort of completely fake a historical context for the pieces that you just don't have. Hmm. Um, which is interesting because a lot of it sort of, a lot of it weaves in sort of known facts about the, the sort of timelines and lives of, um, of the creators. So, for example, one of the ones that you have 
is um, related to the Mona Lisa, uh, and it tells the story of someone who um, was an assistant in Da Vinci's uh, studio, and then um, basically fucked off because of politics and mm. drama in the studio. And Da Vinci later stumbles upon him as one of the corpses that he's doing anatomical studies on. Mm. So it's all sort of it's it's tied in, but but going off at a tangent. Yeah. Um, and it's a way of again him presenting not having full context or understanding of quite complex works of art. Mm-hmm. And the museum vaults. The museum, uh, the museum vaults is uh, Marc Antoine Mathieu, who has three perfectly serviceable first names. Um, <laughs> Greedy. <laughs> Indeed. Share them around. Um, it's cartoony in its style. It's um, sort of set in a kind of, we don't know what time period, but probably future dystopia, but where everyone kind of dresses like Victorian gentlemen. And the Louvre itself is, um, they're trying to figure out a bunch of stuff about it, how it came to be, track the history of it. There are loads of people, but it's also kind of about the nature of representation and art. There's a lot of like, kind of meta jokes about art going on. Um, so for instance, he meets Da Vinci at one point in his kind of travels. He's been sent there specifically to kind of catalogue the museum. Um, meets Da Vinci who has multiple different copies, the Mona Lisa, all with slightly different inflection on the smile, who claims to have just been swapping them out so that everybody gets a slightly different one and makes their own interpretation. Um, it's it's lots of stuff like that. He's, he meets at one point a him, like, an older version of someone doing the same role who kind of has this book and he's like I'm dying now here's the book about all of the stuff and then he kind of becomes that guy and mm. it's loads of puns about the names of the museum so it's known as Musée de Révolue at that point Every, his, the guy's name is an anagram of the Louvre they're, they're just yeah. sort of all over um, I think you'd really like it mm. it's really really good the puns translate they, they are translated puns, oh, okay. as so in... We're dealing with an asterisk type deal here. Yes. Right. Um, it's really good. I mean, there's a bit about sort of... They go on about sort of the noses of the statues and how they got broken, so then they got replaced, but then it wasn't authentic enough, so they had to take them off. And now they make horrible, horrible noses when they want them replaced because it's so much easier to tell where the break point was and break them again when the fashion changes again. <laughs> Just loads <laughs> of stuff like that. It's so good. That's delightful. I like some of the, the, I mean, Glacial Period, I think, is quite similar and has a lot of kind of farcical elements mm. to it. Yeah. Um, well, the, the comedic misinterpretations are... Yeah. Well, there's that, and but then... The, the, towards the end. Sort of later so. on, yeah, like you have a bunch of different interpretations of um, Jesus having a oh, fight in the so snow. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> I loved it when Jesus turned up. We don't like being inside with the heathen artefacts. <laughs> it's just like, it's all, it, it's kind of puerile, and it has this really odd feeling of, it feels like a book I would have found and read purely because it was the only thing that I could have read in an elderly relative's house. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. That's a very specific description, but I know exactly what you yeah. mean. Yes. Also like just sort of not necessarily something I would seek out a hundred percent by myself, but something that I enjoyed um, enjoyed reading regardless. And was uh, was an enchantment? Was that part of the collection? Yes, well, an enchantment part of the collection list, as well. Yeah. Um, I completely missed that one. I... It's about an older guy. There's a sort of gala banquet in his honour. He's coming towards the end of his career, and he just doesn't fucking want to go. So mm. he's kind of sneaks off and wanders around the museum on his own and meets well I mean I described it in my notes part way through reading old man seeks manic pixie dream girl to throw shoes around with because that's mostly what they do but then it just kind of turns out to be about death so isn't everything well yes um it was good it was less irritating than I thought it had the potential to be at first but it was nowhere near as good as museum vaults I mean the stuff you're talking about just now with Glacial Period, it felt to me, reading both of them, like Glacial Period had kind of a flavour of that stuff, and Museum Vaults was just that turbo the whole mm. way through. I really so. want to get me some of that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you'll enjoy it. The, um, the problem child for me was uh, Rohan at the Louvre. So, looking at the descriptions of all of these, I, I initially thought it was going to be more like this than not, which is to say they'd found some talented people, told them, go do a Louvre, and just published whatever the shit got phoned in. And I think actually it's probably only Hirohiko Araki that sold them short. So, um, yeah, you opened it straight up on some of the horrifying archetypal manga male gaze stuff there, Mr. Convery. <laughs> um, it's an arse. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
Round at the Louvre is... It's not that it isn't good, it's visually lovely and some of the storytelling is great, but in the context of the rest of the series, it's a fucking hack job. I... Araki has, or it's Hiri, yeah, Hiri, Hiri, has uh, basically taken a character from midway through his whiffling opus, Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, and dropped a younger version of him into the Louvre in a sort of weird horror mystery story about trying to discover the origins of a painting painted with preternaturally black ink, the blackest pigment that they could find. This collection... Sorry, it feels like a poor vehicle for inserting a version of your own character yeah. from the long-standing series into. And I just thought, well, I, so I looked at some of the names, like Enki, Enki Belafine, you can trust him to do a bunch of weird shit. Um, De Crecy did a De Crecy thing. Oh, and so I kind of thought it would all be like that, but hearing you, you guys describe the rest of them, it seems like there's actually more thematic cohesion than I thought mm. around this idea of problematic interpretation, parsing the gallery experience. The nature of art itself yeah. to some extent, yeah. Whereas this is just a horror story that happens to be set in a gallery. Yeah, I mean, watching mm. Dave just flip through it just there, it looked indistinguishable from any other manga that I have seen. There was there were mm. swords and there were butts. And it's, it's fully <laughs> coloured, it's beautifully put together. It's, it's a lovely piece of work. The translation is ropey as balls. It's, um, at first glance, not something I would read, but it's also good that they've gone outside of their cadre of angry middle-aged Frenchmen. Mm. Well, yes, it is good that they have done that. Something that struck me is that they are all male creators in yeah. any way, which felt kind of garbage. It's like, could you not have found even one fucking woman to do you a comic? I'm sure there's plenty in France. Yeah, France is not really short on creators, but then... I mean, this is this has been a big issue in France in the last couple of years. Mm. It particularly kicked off around Angoulême. Mm. Um, How was where, it? Hannah Berry described it: impertinent lack of a penis. <laughs> <laughs> there were, you know, there are thirty or forty people nominated each year for the Grand Prix d'Angoulême, and yeah. no women this year, and very yeah. rare for women to be on there. And France is France is a country that takes comics seriously. Yes. They are the whole ninth art and all that. So it's also a country that has probably roughly as many women as men, like quite a lot of countries do. Yeah, like pretty much, pretty much all of them. Yeah, I don't know China. I mean, it's got quite a lot of men at this point, but that's sort of their fault. So, Whoops. yeah, mm. um, I've been reading a lot of Wikipedia lately. You say is there a prog album about that? <laughs> <laughs> we can make one. Well, that's not. So here's, I've got a here's, sabbatical coming up. Me too. So a lap. We could do it together. I'm from September 5th. Oh, no, I'm just back. Mm. Oh, no, sorry. No I'm, no, no, I'm not back. I'm back the month afterwards. Um, if I don't go to Portland, we could do a prog You've album. You've got one okay. month to do a prog yeah. album. Can I do some screaming noises? Yeah. Okay. So the thing we're sort of dancing around, or at least we were until we started talking about making a prog album. Sorry. Um, yes. I'm excited. Was that this is a really weird thing to do, right? Like, just yeah. do a bunch of comics about... Your museum. extremely old and well-respected, yeah. well-known and well-patronised art gallery and that you have in the middle of Paris. And it's shaken out thematically, I, I think, guess. I wonder how much direction there was. Well, by the sounds of Rohan, none. But then by the sounds of at least three of the others, and, quite a bit. And Rohan at the Louvre made almost no sense until I spent 20 minutes on the Wikipedia page for Jojo's Bizarre Adventure working out what the shit the context was. Mm. Yeah, I mean... I guess would this would this work for another museum? I mean, if if someone commissioned a bunch of comics about the British Museum or about the Mets or something like that, is is there anything can, in that? I can imagine museums it would work for. Like, I the mean, Natural History Museum screams out with, as without it ending up as Knights of the Museum yeah. in comic yeah. form. I mean, I feel like the sort of the kind of creation myth around the series itself sort of parallels a lot of the stuff they're dealing with about the museum in the comics. There's this whole it's sort of magical and unknowable and that's kind of yeah. also how the comic series feels mm. we don't really know where it began or what the point of it is yeah. and it's kind of self-congratulatory yeah in the way that um, kind of is yeah. it's, it's yeah. very hard it's kind of hard to be humble about the Louvre isn't it yeah, yeah. it's quite a huge imperialist collection of everything well. anyone ever did and it, so in a similar vein you could totally do this from the British Museum yeah. You've got the same madly eclectic historical sweep, you've got the same 
press of cultural arrogance. And also, I think one thing that a lot of the comics did a good job on was picking up, like, paying lip service to the big stuff, but picking up on mm. small stuff that you might not necessarily mm. see. And I think originally... Mm. In fact, ex- have... explicitly done in yes. Glacial Period, in fact. This is what I loved in um, Cruising Through the Loop, the David Pridham thing, uh, which was, it completely elides the uh, Mona Lisa. So mm. it's only ever shown on tiny camera phones or just out of shots. <laughs> and he's really interested in the experience of people in the gallery. So it's him running through the loop very quickly on a series of phone calls trying to catch up with a girlfriend or a female friend or something and talking about people experiencing the art. And so there are nebulously sketched, very foofy things that are sometimes recognisable as big pieces, mm. but mostly not. Uh, mm. It's very painty. And yeah, any of the big pieces that are, that are iconic are always done tiny or they're mm-hmm. on someone's camera phone or whatever. It, it's about him watching people watching art uh, in a way that's sort of slightly diff- differently kind of, yeah, it, changes the context um, and then there are a couple of panels which is supposedly the view out from the Mona Lisa with the slightly glib I wonder mm-hmm. what she sees mm-hmm. but then some of the people are rendered in different artistic mm-hmm. idioms so there's a lady that looks a bit like a mid-stage Picasso and yeah. some mm-hmm. sort of medieval portrait and stuff it, it's, it's just it's sort of beautifully keenly observed these little moments of people interacting with with exhibits and again it deals with that kind of it's all a bit overwhelming it's all a bit magical and weird but as a I love the fact that it completely ignores it ignores and does not exor- ignore the pieces. It's, mm. It totally refuses yes. to be deferential to them. Yeah, yes. and, it, and it really mm. focuses on people asking about, like putting their head in the lion's mouth sculpture for the picture. And there's a couple of pages where it dwells on that sort of weird, very human behaviour in galleries. Yes, there's some of that. It's not exactly the same thing, but in museum vaults, there's lots of sort of each little section is something kind of new and weird and like just like a kind of people gone wrong in a museum they don't entirely understand. So there's a room full of people, like sort of future security guards, being taught how to like tut tut when people are touching the paintings too much but they're saying, well, you know, he's touching the paintings he wants to and you're coming from the same place because you love it too but you also need to preserve it so you need to make sure that he doesn't feel too reprimanded but he knows that you that he shouldn't be touching the painting. And there's a whole room full of people like, yes, trying to get the inflection right and great sorry i really really like this comic that sounds great mm. similarly the thing of the uh there's an artifact with ideas above its station in glacial period <laughs> mm. um thinking that everyone wants to see it because it's next to one of the only benches in the loaf <laughs> people just sat there and stared at it um i thought it was just a nice little look at how people would experience the um the collection yeah. itself. And I like the mirroring there of the people from futureness come and misinterpret the collection. Mm-hmm. And then, sort of towards the back of the book, you learn the ways in which the collection, because some of the pieces have become weirdly sentient in some yes. way, some of the collection has misunderstood itself. Some of have become weirdly sentient. But it's, and I, I enjoy that as a slightly glib symmetry in it. Mm. And the other thing in Glacial Period, of course, is that half of the time the art is being experienced in an entirely non visual way mm. by dog character who can smell mm. history. Yeah. Um, which is another interesting sort of like how are you supposed to see this stuff? Mm. Um, and there's some lovely wine tasting notes in there as well. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, the the collection stuff you mentioned. There's also there's another bit of museum vaults where they meet the guy who's um, sort of in charge of the framing department, and he basically keeps arrangements of frames without any art in them so that he will know how to throw together a really good exhibition as soon as they ask him to. But it helps him to have a totally blank canvas of placing this. So he's just arranging frames endlessly. So all sort of behavioural stuff in mm. museums gets picked apart quite well. I went to a thing, this was many years ago, back when I was doing tech homes at the British Museum. It's like a sort of experience exchange thing where um, a couple of tech authors, information architect, user experience people got together with some people from the British Museum. It was one of those sort of, we call our jobs different things, but it's all mm-hmm. the same shit type exchanges. Mm-hmm. Um, they like an interpretation officer, a curator, one of their sort of art people. We were talking about exhibition design. They were reworking the money gallery. This was mm-hmm. a few years ago. And they wanted some sort of feedback and some ideas on testing. And you know, how could, one of the questions we talked about was how would you use a test a museum? And we, we sort of had a few ideas, but they'd um, done a bunch of stuff where they basically paper prototyped the entire set of ex- exhibits. They sort of roughed stuff out and built little paper models. Mm-hmm. And apparently this was considered in museum circles at the time, at least, super racy and controversial. You just, you just don't do that. <laughs> oh, and they were sort of, yeah, testing this with people. We suggested a bunch of stuff like just, just following people around discreetly mm-hmm. and just contextual inquiry stuff. Mm-hmm. 
really, really interesting. But just to kind of to think about the fact that people do and don't think in these ways about presenting artifacts in some of the ways. Yes. So they'd given a lot of attention to user flow from a kind of optimizing the whole gallery experience. Getting, getting people through, through people the museum, through. Yeah. yeah. But not a lot of thought about natural stopping points. Mm. Um, that explains a lot about a lot of museums I have been to. Build up clogs. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And not a lot about kind of, I guess what you might think about as natural affordance. So, well, people are going to be craning to look at the text here or everyone's going to look mm. at that and so not this. And, yes. Yeah. Yes, no, a lot, of, a lot of sort of museum and gallery culture from the inside seems to be about the quite self kind of self-reflexive thing of how do we present this thing that we have, not yeah. rather than the yeah. actual whole user how, experience. How are people going to experience this yeah. thing we have? Exactly. One of the things I really liked was that they fundamentally realised that the vast majority of their visitors didn't give a shit. Um, like, <laughs> this is the very obviously bank-sponsored Which museums gallery need to know? At the British Museum. You don't go there to go to the money gallery. You drift in curiously, you go through it quickly, you stop at a few things. Mm. And so they had a few big-ticket things that they sort of laid out. And they fundamentally realised that they were appealing to hardcore specialists and people who didn't give a shit. I rather enjoyed that. Optimise for the specialists if you can without making it worse for the general body of users? I think mm. that's where they went. I yeah. can't really remember. It's weird because, yeah, money's normally... There's normally a few coins in a cultural presentation of some area of the world at some point mm. in time. It's not normally a focus in any way. Yes. Um, Here's our Roman cash. It's the only one we've got. One of the... Um, I think it might have been China. One of the things we, we got to look at was um, money shaped like knives. Ooh. Very, very early. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think it was Chinese coins shaped like blades. Knife money. Yeah. Mm. The first... I think those are the first known um, coins, aren't they? They had a really, really old... British thing, or somewhere in, in the British Isles, which was just this vaguely stamped, largely eroded lump of gold, um, which one of them just dropped into my hand and scared the shit out of me. It's legit, it's yeah. legit, it's legit, this one's but not. I mean, given that you know, money originates in sort of solidifying of debt and the codifying of mm. debt contracts between mm. people, having it as a knife is, is quite I, a very literal way of doing that. Yeah. Mm. So, we've gone way off topic. We're inspired, right? It's at least not butts. But it, it's a there's a thing here which it's was Rohan. <laughs> there, it goes, there were butts. Yeah, there, there were butts. It there's not a lot about there's a lot in, in these in the Louvre collection about gallery experience. There's not a lot about curation or any of that side. I was half mm. wondering if they might do something about the Louvre, whereas it's all impressionistically about them. I, I thought that was all. There's, a, there's more about curation and museum vaults, but it's mm. in that kind of slightly weird kind of dystopian yeah. thing of making a point of it rather than treating it sort of evenly. Yeah. And then, yeah, there's Rohan, which is just a gory horror story with really nice page design and reasonably good art, but a weird alternation between male gaze shit and gore and badly articulated storytelling. It's not... There awful, was there was another manga came out. Oh, it's the one that, uh, this year or last Guardi year. I think it's Guardians. Guardians of the Loop. Mm. Yeah. Um, oh, that looked lovely. Very clipped, very simplistic style, like a sort of um, watercolorized version of the more detailed panels in Barefoot Again. Uh, quite possibly. Um, yeah, the author is um, Jiro Taniguchi, and I'm completely unfamiliar with anything he's done. Mm. Um, Summit of the Gods series. That's Sim nice and symmetrical. We don't normally get symmetry. Yeah. Not on this plane, anyway. Some pictures of Buffalo's. Oh. A Distant Neighbourhood. I was just checking the Oh, titles. A Distant Neighbourhood. That guy. It's that guy, yeah. Oh, that's supposed to be brilliant. Okay, well, you might like this. The one that we didn't read. <laughs> Yeah, um, we didn't, didn't read it. About a feverish Japanese artist walking around the Louvre, hallucinating, um, and sounds all right. talking to uh, various artists. Um, so that might be quite interesting because that sort of appears to be about the Louvre again, rather than um, people getting murdered in butts, mm. not by butts, just. Murdered by butts? That's a great idea. I'm pretty sure Chuck Tingle's done that. Yeah, one. save it for the butt cast. <laughs> if we do the butt cast, we have to read an excerpt from at least one Chuck Tingle. 
Do you want to do the one about Brexit or what? Yeah, let's, let's the read. The one that's let's about read. the one that's about Brexit. Oh, Christ. Let's, let's read from the Bre- Brexit tingler. Founded by the surprisingly enthusiastic reaction to... Yeah. Yes, he does like going meta. I do love me some tingle. And the, like, creator narrative is just insane yeah. at this point. So how, genuinely how, deranged. How, how do we feel about the idea of a museum collection of comics at the end of this chat. I think that this one is broadly a good collection of comics, but that's more because they're good comics rather than because it was particularly curated or anything to do with the Louvre. Yeah, I still can't shake the feeling that it's a very strange exercise, despite the fact that it's had some pretty nifty outputs. Yeah. Yes, no, it, it, it did... It made some good things, but I'm not sure it particularly achieved anything in and of itself, or mm. maybe what it was trying to achieve, but I don't know what that is. Okay. I would unequivocally recommend Glacial Period, and I think it's a really interesting way of examining interactions with art. Same with Museum mm. Vaults. I think even more so. I liked it more than oh. I liked Glacial Period. I didn't dislike Glacial yeah. Period, but... Rohan looks fine, wouldn't strongly recommend it. Cruising through the Louvre, fine, interesting, quite slight. Mm-hmm. I would like to read some more of these. I would yes. like to probably spend more than 20 minutes I spent the glacial period immediately <laughs> before this podcast as well. So um, You did good. Yeah. You're welcome to borrow the Bucks one. I don't want to borrow the Bucks one. But you can come back for the Buckcast. I don't know if I want to come back for the Buckcast. And on that butt-heavy note, congratulations on everyone just talking about butts quite so much in what was otherwise ostensibly our sort of most high culture topic to date. I thought that was architecture. Yeah, I thought that was architecture. We went properly high concept with architecture. Yeah, and we didn't talk about butts. No. Is that because brutalist buildings don't have butts? In general, no. Or often places to put your own butt. Yeah, that's that kind of... Unless your butt is square. Mm. Aggressively hostile street furniture thing, which I... Have I I gone off on one about this before? No, there's there's a 99% Invisible podcast about exactly that. You can go and listen to that rather than lodge it. I agree. Good night. He got shut down. Oh. Say good night. Good night. Bastards. <laughs> I was brushing the snack shards off my pale crop.